Welcome to this week's episode of Mixed Methods and the last of season two. A couple announcements before we get started. First, join us today, Thursday, February 15th at 7 p.m. Pacific time for a Q&A in the Slack group with today's guest, Jan Chipchase. You can request an invite under the community tab at mixed-methods.org. Also, check out Mixed Methods on Medium. You'll find UX research how-tos, write-ups on the latest conferences you might have missed, and more. Today's episode is sponsored by DScout, a remote research platform that is turning fieldwork on its head by allowing researchers to conduct experience sampling with real people right on their smartphones. Visit dscout.com to see how easy it is to start your own study. Here's this week's show. Jan Chipchase has done it all. Before leading the global research practice at Frog, the well-known design and innovation consultancy, Jan was a principal scientist at Nokia. He specialized in entry-level products and his work caught the attention of a writer for the New York Times Magazine. He became the centerpiece for an article titled, Can the Cell Phone Help End Global Poverty? Jan was working on a product at that time that collectively sold over a billion units. Now he's running a consultancy, Studio D Radio Durands, a luggage brand, SDR Traveler, events all over the world, and is also the author of the popular Field Study Handbook. Feel free to check out the episode notes or Studio D website for more details about the master classes and retreats Jan is putting on in 2018. They sound so dreamy, taking place everywhere from Jakarta to Amsterdam. This is Ariel Sionflon, and you're listening to Mixed Methods. Today's episode, how to work internationally. So Jan, usually I start these conversations by asking someone about their background, but I actually wanted to start today by asking you about a principle of Studio D and something that really stood out to me in the field study handbook. Mm -hmm. And that is your reference to something you call, you know, those projects. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in a recent Medium post, you said the metric for a good project is that it changes the life trajectories of a team. And there's an amazing quote in the field study handbook as well. And it says, it's those projects that rapidly evaporate any tolerance for bullshit. They remind us of what we've let drift and provide a rough hand to steer us back on track. They are the essence of a life worked well. And this just so, this really resonated with me. So I thought we could start the conversation here and maybe just having you speak a little bit about this and maybe a project that was that for you. Mm. Um yeah, I, I guess um, maybe the, the background to that is that um, I've been doing this for quite a while, and um, it's given me a fair amount of perspective on seeing how things play out, and I've also uh, within how they play out within organisations. I've also worked within a very large corporation, a much smaller consultancy or a medium-sized consultancy vlog, and. Um, as my own consultancy, I've seen it from different perspectives. Mm -hmm. And I guess the older I get and the more experience I have, the less fucks I give. (laughs) Um, About, I don't know, doing what the norm is or what you think you should be doing and basically being able to ask yourself whether it feels right and whether the relationships that you have with it, relationship 
that you have with your client feels right um, and with your team. And in that regard, you know, I'm, I'm going to be dead probably in 40 or 50 years. Um, um, a lot of your listeners will be dead in about 80 years. Um, do you really want to live a life where you're looking back and you're thinking about the missed opportunities? Um, I certainly don't. And the very strange thing has happened. Uh, like in the first couple of years, um, I was running a fairly traditional consultancy. I would say, well, traditional, non-traditional consultancy. Mm-hmm. But in the last couple of years, we've become far more independent of client work um, because we have these different revenue streams. And it actually affords us a considerable amount of freedom. And so I feel kind of even more closely aligned to those projects and less worried about whether the approach I take is sustainable or not, because there are these other things, these other forces that we have in play that give us the freedom to turn down work, essentially. And so with that, I'm talking about the, the luggage brand that I run and now publishing and now events. So we do do quite a lot of events. Yeah, it's interesting, Jan, hearing you talk about these side businesses that have kind of been formed out of your consultancy that are allowing you more freedom in your work as a researcher. Yeah. And it makes me really curious about the projects that you are choosing to take on as a researcher now that you have these other revenue streams that are related, but, um, you know, basically give you that freedom to be picky. Uh, I mean... The studio is an experiment, like a very active experiment, <laughs> and it's not designed to last forever. Hmm. It's not designed to retain its shape and its properties that it has now. I'm quite happy to change absolutely everything tomorrow um, for the right thing and for the right reasons. Um, the smartest choice I made was to not have any full-time employees um, in retrospect. I didn't realize it at the time um, because that has allowed me to bring in kind of wildly diverse collaborators onto things. And it turns out it is relatively easy within, certainly within my network to bring really highly talented people onto projects and deliver world-class results. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's a preface to saying when a client comes to us and it's typically a direct referral from one of our previous clients or it's a, pre- a previous client coming back from all work. It's a matter of having a conversation about what, what they're after and whether it's interesting to the studio and to me personally. Mm-hmm. So some of, some of it's around scheduling, like uh, do you have enough time to, to fit it in? And some clients will, um, will delay projects so that they can bring me on board and others they'll pass because they need it done immediately and don't necessarily have the bandwidth to take it on. We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsor. How many times do you think you touch your phone a day? Try 2,617. Seems like a lot, but D-Scout research shows that's just the median. Since everyone is already on their phone, D-Scout took qualitative research right to the people. Their pool of over 100,000 participants answer client questions on the largest digital diary platform around. You don't need to spend weeks setting up and recruiting for your research when you can use DScout to capture experience remotely. Learn how quickly you can launch your next study at dscout.com. What you just said 
brings a lot of questions up for me, but I guess one of them is, you know, in terms of, because I really was moved when you were describing those projects. I think that a lot of us are looking for that deeper meaning in the work that we're doing, right? Like we want to be a force for good in the world and we want to move the world and we want to be moved by the world. And, and I guess I'm curious, you know, with someone like you who's had the chance to work on so many like objectively like interesting projects in so many different places with so many different people, like, are there certain attributes of projects that you find lend themselves to being those sort of projects? I'm mostly interested in the projects that I don't think another organization could do or if they try to do it they'd fuck it up um, because they don't have a, a nuanced sense of what it would require to deliver something in a way that is rigorous and ethically sound mm-hmm. um, and pretty much anywhere in the world as well um, operating in quite diverse environments just to, just as a rule of thumb if um if you're the first organization to go into a domain where you're at the kind of frontier of a particular research topic, the amount that you can benefit, the, the degree that you can benefit society or your client or the organization or a department within a client um, is significantly greater than if you're the third or the fourth company in that or the you know researchers going into that domain. Mm-hmm. So I like to operate in environments where I don't think people have been or I don't think people could go and do a good job. So otherwise, I mean, if someone else can do it, then job done. You don't need me. In all seriousness, right? I mean, why, why would you hire me if you can get someone else for cheaper and more flexible and all the rest of it? Yeah. Jan, would you speak more to what you said in terms of rigorous and ethically sound? I, f- I feel like that's really interesting, especially given like the areas that you're working in and the type of work that you're doing. I'm, I'm curious what you mean when you say that or like how you apply that in your work. Sure, okay. So I should preface rigorous with... Um, so I worked for 10 years out of, based out of Tokyo in Nokia's research lab. Mm-hmm. And that was my first taste of a kind of formal research environment. I've worked in a research institute before that, but it was pretty lazy affair. And I learned a lot about rigor. Um, and I'd say in Frog, I learned a lot about trusting instinct. Um, but I also saw, and I was tasked with um, building, out, building out a research practice there um, globally, is there's a massive difference between designers that go into research, for example, and researchers that expand to include other skill sets in terms of rigor. And there's a lot of creatives practicing research that lack the foundational understanding of what it is that they're doing. They cannot, they can speak very eloquently to research and they can use the language of research. Um, but I think they often lack um, yeah, the grounded understanding. So number one is on every project that we do, I want to have someone that really has a, an understanding of what it takes to be rigorous, but also an understanding of when to step away from that rigor and to let things play out. Um, and that's very much around having 
experience whatever very well-run project is and the ways in which it can fail if you take too many shortcuts to things. So in terms of ethically sound, um, so a, a very, I mean, it, that's a massive question and mm-hmm. it's kind of booking itself, right? Mm-hmm. So the first of all, the, the world is beautifully gray. <laughs> and what is morally and ethically correct in one country or context can be completely different in another context. And I'm lucky enough to have traveled very widely and to have seen um, how different things are perceived in all these different contexts. Um, I've also worked with a lot of clients that are in domains that are challenging the status quo. And many of them, because they work at a faster pace to the legal infrastructures within society, uh, are in a legal gray area. Um, Some of them also have actors that use their platforms that are actually doing things that are illegal to the platform as well. And they want to be, you know, people who run those platforms, um, they want to kick people off those platforms as well. Mm -hmm. But also, we're in a world where many organizations really operate in public and they cannot be seen to be asking these very difficult, difficult questions about how are people using our platform and, and so on. And for me, you know, a really interesting question is how do you research, for example, um, you have a client that pays you to research things that are technically illegal that are happening on their gray area platform, legally gray area platform, but not illegal platform. Um, And then so from my point of view, I need to figure out what's going on, figure out what's happening that's illegal. But my first priority is to the participants in terms of their well-being. So the studio has a participant first um, principle um, for all of our engagements where we collect data. So our participants come first, the team comes second, and the client comes third. And if I put it in that order, from my perspective, the client wins because we're able to get to a far kind of purer notion of what the truth is. Um, So in that example, I need to figure out what people are doing that's illegal, but ultimately I need to protect those people who are doing the illegal things from the client um, so that they're not specifically targeted by the client. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I still need to report back to the client what's happening on their platform. So I love the challenge of being able to do all of that. Um, it, it really takes a deft hand. Yeah, I can imagine. It, Jan, that makes me, you know, curious about just recruiting in general, right? Like you are in these nuanced and tricky situations. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something that came up in the handbook as well, right? Like you, for example, talked about speaking to young men and women who are unmarried in Saudi Arabia and, you know, couldn't be in the presence of the opposite sex. And and reading through that, I was wondering, you know, I, I know you also talk about agency recruiting versus in-house, but yeah, how do you begin to even, you know, find these people who are illegally doing something that even the company, you know, potentially can't identify? So actually, the project you're referring to is one that happened in Saudi Arabia that we worked for. I, I can reveal it because the client revealed it. Uh-huh. Um, it's uh, STC, which is the AT&T equivalent of Saudi Arabia. And, and their ask was, um, we're starting a new operator service targeting the youth 
Um, it could be a standalone company or it could be a brand within our company. And help us understand what is different about Saudi Arabian youth's use of mobile, kind of voice data and so on. And uh, how should that translate into our service offering? And what should our brand stand for and why? Mm -hmm. And they wanted us on the ground yesterday. They wanted it completed within um, three weeks, ideally the work. Intense. It took two weeks to get a visa in place. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and you could say, with um, in Saudi Arabia, with uh, unmarried men and women to be in the same room is illegal. I mean, th there's so many kind of grey areas in every society. And for example, in that um, project, you could have someone who is wearing an abaya, kind of is fully covered. Mm -hmm. On the street, she is wearing that, and 10 minutes later, she could be in a bikini on the beach, um, literally, on a, in a, in a um, private club, but on the beach, surrounded by men and women um, in a bikini in that same society. Hmm. Uh, so there's, there's so many – within every society, there's things that are legal and things that are illegal. But human nature being what it is, people always find their way around it. I think mm -hmm. so. For me, the the thing is always to have at least one trusted person on the ground that I had, and I was very lucky. I worked in Saudi before, and I had, um, even though I hadn't worked with them on a previous project, I had a very, um, I, I'd built up a relationship with a researcher on the ground um, called Saman, and she helped me mobilize a, a team. So. Um, I've never, in, in my entire career, I've never run a project personally, led a project personally, that I've used a recruiting agency. On every single project, I do my own recruiting. And the reason is, the primary reason is, I want to understand the motivation for people for joining the study. Mm. I would argue if you don't understand the motivation, um, then your data is probably already suspect. And any participants that are recruited through a recruiting agency makes it far harder to ascertain the motivation because there's a significant distortion there. I'm not saying we get it right every time, but um, when you do your own recruiting, it's far easier to figure out what that motivation is. Yeah. So, Jan, that answer, you know, makes me really curious about the team, right? And you mentioned earlier something that's unique about um your studio is that you don't have any full-time you know, full-time employees it sounds like mm -hmm. how do you do that how do you find these people don't they have other jobs like how do how do you throw together these teams when you fly to these places both the fly-ins and the people there yeah how does that work so i have a business partner um that helps me run things um i have a pool of people that i work with and really, to run the studio, I'd probably need a pool of about 10 professionals, um, kind of with classic consulting background that I can draw on. And between them, um, we will be able to kind of staff up on um, pretty much most projects that the studio gets asked to do. But then I also hire local crews. And my local crew is typically a fixer and or guide sometimes we hire some local creatives as well 
They rarely hire local researchers, um, mostly because the local researcher will do a good job of decoding local culture, but they're not typically effective at bridging that to what the client asks is. So they don't really have enough organizational understanding, and they rarely have um, sufficient domain understanding as well. And I expect all three of those from the people that I hire in a pro- in the kind of professional researcher role. Mm-hmm. So as a studio, I've consistently hired between 20 and 35 people per year. We look at yeah, I have a feeling this year will be a similar number as well. I'm not particularly counting. I, I don't care if I hire one person or 100. I, I care about the quality of the deliverables and that's that's it. So, Jan, you mentioned the guide and the fixer, and I think most people probably wouldn't be familiar with those terms. So, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe you could speak a little bit to what those roles look like. Sure, yeah. So, um, actually, I have three roles. So, a guide, a fixer, and then the fly-in fixer. So, I'll explain the fixer first. Um, a fixer is someone who, when you ask them a question, they don't say no. They say, I'll figure it out. And they don't always get it right, but they have an attitude of they will try and figure it out. <laughs> um, they are local to the country that we're looking to operate in um, or the city. They probably lived there for at least three years, most recently. Or they may have moved away, but they grew up there and still maintain a strong network. They're at least bilingual um, with my core project language being English, so English plus the local language. Some of them speak four, five, six languages. Um, and in somewhere like India, it's quite common to have multiple um, that, that many languages plus dialects as well. Um, they're good at multitasking. They have a strong local network. Some of them have a strong local network that is tied into the domain, specific domain that we're interested in researching as well. Um, that's the fixer role. Um, my principle is I need one fixer per city that I'm operating in. Um, I actually run a service called the Fixer List. So um, I've been doing this for many years, and I actually have a pretty decent database of folks that have signed up to become fixers. Um, in every city that we operate, we'll hire at least one fixer plus a number of guides. A guide is um, bilingual and sociable. That is the minimum requirement. Um, many of them are significantly more than that. And some guides are very close to being fixers, but I only need one fixer per location. So um, a guide is remunerated at a lower rate. Mm-hmm. Um, so both of them are remunerated um, according to the principle of being equitable. It's actually quite a tricky thing to figure out. But we try to be equitable in the way that we set things up. So that's fixers and guides. Um, and if you think about a team, say, let's think about a team flying in from San Francisco, and they're operating on calendar time, you know, super fast pace, and then they fly somewhere around the world, and there's really significant questions like, um, where should you stay? And what is the appropriate protocol to dress and greet people and um, if we've got a survey form what are the what are the culturally appropriate questions to put on there mm-hmm. uh, 
and who should we be meeting? So um, I expect my fixers and guides to be able to recruit as well, and not just within their network, um, but well outside the network so that we can avoid significant bias. Um, so so that, that's the fixer and guide role. The international fixer, my international fixers are someone who, if I'm flying into a new destination before the plane lands, I will open the door of the plane and the, you know, the emergency masks all fall down <laughs> and the fixer grabs a parachute um, and uh, jumps out of the door and lands. And when the plane comes into land and I clear customs, the office is set up and the networks are in place and everything's good to go and there's a nice warm cup of tea waiting for me. Hmm. So that's what I expect from my international fixer, give or take someone who can land in any environment and function effectively, So, which is what I need to do. And which um, So I, my international fixers are folks that sometimes I send them ahead of me arriving um, to get shit done. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Jan, something that you mentioned was, you know, getting on the ground, getting people set up with a place to stay, your team. And it brought to mind the concept of the pop-up studio that you've spoken about a lot and you write about in um, your most recent book. Mm -hmm. And so I was wondering if maybe you could explain the concept of a pop-up studio and yeah, and maybe we can talk a little bit about that. Sure, yeah. So the pop-up studio is the answer to the question. What is the optimal space for an international team that is spending a short amount of time in a new environment to live and work from? Bearing in mind that there's a whole ton of stuff that they've got to figure out. They need to be effective. They need to be safe. Um, they're going to be working with a local crew as well. And the, the default when, I, when corporate researchers fly into a place is to stay in a hotel, sometimes an Airbnb. Um, and when they meet the typically the local recruiting agency um, that they've hired, it tends to be a very them and us type relationship. So if, if you imagine arriving somewhere and working with a local agency and you might have long work days or not, they may be charging you overtime or not, um, but it's a transactional kind of relationship typically. And what I aim for with our and the way that we operate in Studio D is I want the fixer and the guides um, to feel like they're part of the team. And so, first of all, they get treated equally. Um, within the pop-up studio, um, just a working principle is the most junior member of the team gets to pick the accommodation first. So I'm the most senior member. I get whatever's left over, and sometimes that means not having a bed. <laughs> sometimes sleep out under the stars, which is quite nice to me. <laughs> I mean, it, it sets the tone for saying whatever rules that you think apply normally in the way that you run projects, they don't apply here. We get to reinvent how we want to operate and what our rules are. And I think everything can be up for grabs. And once people see that in action and they see it and feel it and, um, and it frees their mind to think very differently about the project that they're on and why they are there and what the opportunities are both within the project and, and well beyond it in terms of shaping them and who they are. 
What would you say is the difference between, you know, just having a bunch of people go into an Airbnb and what you're creating with this team together? So I should say that when I first started doing this approach, um, was at Nokia <coughs> with some wonderful colleagues. And um, there wasn't Airbnb and there wasn't this ability to just go online and choose a house and so on. Mm-hmm. I'd say fundamentally the difference is how you think about the space and how you think about your relationship to the people in the city, which relates to how you think of who you're going to bring onto the project and for you to be part of the team. So if you have a subcontractor relationship with people on the ground, you're basically going to collect inferior data, I think, even mm-hmm. even great subcontractor, um, because the way that they approach it, the engagement with the world out there, and when you when you as a researcher meet uh, the people that you that have been set up for you, you have a different relationship with them. So yeah, well, I'm not sure about you, but yeah. yeah, and I. I don't know if if this is a consistent thing that you do, but, you know, I've heard that you, you know, will have people move all of the furniture around to make it feel more like their own space or, you know, yeah. sometimes purchase bicycles and things like that so that when people are actually even like moving through the city, they're, you know, kind of doing that in a more uh, traditional way to those areas and a way that they're engaging with the space more. Yes. Thank you. You answered the question better than I <laughs> So something else that I'm really curious about as I, you know, read about your work and have listened to you speak is the actual like day-to-day on the ground research that you're doing in these other countries because you talk about the guide and the fixer and I'm curious about, you know, especially because you do have this preference for not using local researchers. How do the actual like interviews or interactions happen? Is there a translator? Do you find that that makes it difficult to really like get the meaning? Um, yeah, I, I'm curious about that part, the actual just, you know, work. Sure, yeah. So um, I'm not, not adverse to local researchers. I've worked with some wonderful local researchers over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, however, if I'm hiring a team, I want to have as few people as possible on the team. And... Uh, the res- I expect the researcher to be able to have a good grasp of what the organization that's hiring us is, is wanting to achieve. Yeah. And a lot, a lot of local researchers do not have that skill set. Um, so I'd rather have someone who is more of a multitasker and closer to the fixer role. Um, I occasionally hire translators and interpreters Um most of the time, I expect my fixer, who has been screened for their language skills, to be able to do that, um, to be able to um, interpret and translate the interview. Um, and it's a, there's a real art form for finding those folks. Um, if you have a interpreter, for example, let's say you spend $1,000 a day on an interpreter, and um, at the end of the day, then their, their work is done and they go home. Um, I want to have someone who wants to stick around because it's interesting. And um, interpreters and translators are typically set up um, on an hourly rate. And so you're constantly looking at the clock. Um, whereas with the local fixers, I operate a day rate. 
Um, and so they just, you know, and we with the pop-up studio, we create a space that is welcoming and interesting and the conversations are interesting and um, people are engaging and respect them and so they want to stick around. So I'm, I'm working on a project right now. We've just finished three weeks in field in Sao Paulo, Chicago, and London. And our local crews in each place have been really exemplary. It's really, um, I never, assume, never assume it's going to be right, but um, uh, I think since the studio started, of the probably hired a hundred and twenty people or something like that, mm-hmm. um, and probably about half of those are fixers and guides, and. I can think of only two people that I didn't get it like 100% right on out of that. I think it's a pretty good hit rate. Yeah, it almost sounds like the fixer become like, I feel like that hearing that about their role in the project, it makes it even more clear how much a part of the team they are, as opposed to, you know, them just, you had an example, you know, in a talk that you gave where you said, you know, a fixer is someone who, if you said, I need a pink elephant on the stage by the end of, of today, there would be a pink elephant on the stage. But I feel like hearing that their role is so much actually engaged in the work that you're doing, as opposed to just setting things up, like really clarifies the role that they play in the work and how crucial it is. Oh, totally. Yeah. Um, I expect them by day three to really have a firm grasp of the subject matter. Um, and, you know, maybe by day five, I could go into an interview and um, not need to open my mouth for the first hour of the interview because they can just carry the conversation and they know where to get the conversation to to get to the point where you can start revealing stuff. Mm. So they, the, their skill set varies considerably. Um, and I, I, I don't know exactly, but I've probably hired over a thousand people into fixer and guide roles in my career and everyone is slightly different um on the ground so my working principle is um if i hire eight people say one fixer and a number of guides so if if i hire eight then one person you'll probably want to let go because or fire or marginalize so that they don't impact the dynamic of the team and because they're underperforming. Five people will do the job that you expect them to do. Mm-hmm. Do it fine. And two people will reveal things that you never thought to ask. And one of the reasons why I don't like to have everything planned before we arrive, even though clients expect, well, yeah, what are we doing on each day? Um, but to leave open space. Um, is because my local crew will enable me to do things that I just, you know, from afar, I was just not able to anticipate. And there's at least one person in every project that does that and just opens opens your mind to what is possible. And I love setting up projects so that we have the flexibility to be able to take advantage of that. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a lot of value left on the table. Yeah, that makes sense. Something I'm curious about, too, is like in hearing about the studio and the local teams and, you know, basically this whole like setup of your projects in these, you know, different countries. How much of the research is happening inside the pop up studio? How much of it is happening outside? Like, is your day full of, 
you know, getting on bikes and traveling around? Is it people coming to you? Oh, definitely we go out into the world. And so the principle for every engagement is what is the optimal space to learn? And often it's in the home but or other contexts in which people do the everyday things that they do. What does your day-to-day look like when you're on one of these projects? Is it people coming to you? Is it you going out into their homes? And it sounds like it's a lot of you going out and the studio is a place for like the team to work as a team. Yeah. So every day we have a stand-up in the, in the beginning of the day, so 15 minutes. Um, every day has should have a daily debrief. If we run interviews late into the evening, we would push the daily debrief to the, to the next day. But we set aside one hour to talk about what we learned every day. Um, The most common mistake that teams make, I think, is to work very late. And I like to set a clear time by which the working day is over so that they can switch off and step away from the data. If they're very passionate about it, they'll end up talking about it, but it won't feel like work, so it won't tie them out. Mm -hmm. Um, So I like to set things up to be quite sustainable in that regard. So. We have a clear start and clear end to the day. I think that's very, very important in terms of personal energy, um, particularly as we may be months in field and it really is a thing to manage. After that, because we have the, the working principle is to have one local fixer and guide or guide for every international person flying in. Occasionally it's a little less, sometimes it's a little more. It allows each of the people flying in to be able to operate independently. So we can run concurrent teams. Hmm. So we might be able to run three teams, for example, um, running interviews at the same time. So if you look at the kind of typical research schedule of we need to do two interviews a day, well, you know, if you've got three teams, not everyone even needs to do an interview per day. And it really, in the beginning of the field study, we have more people on things and we're very cognizant about who is um, working with whom so there's a lot of cross-pollination and later in the field study there's a lot more um, freedom for people to say well I'm going to take this um, who wants in but not everyone needs to go uh, to it Um, and it's more about uh, reflection so We've just wrapped up a field study in London and I think of the nine days we had there we actually this being our last field study, we set aside two whole days for talking about the data in itself. So the longer the project goes on, the more time we spend on reflecting on what we've learned as opposed to data collection, mm-hmm. as well as a dedicated um, reflection time later, kind of since this process. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I feel like sometimes you can get so caught up in the work that you don't make enough time to actually make sense of everything that you've experienced and learned. Um, So I know that we're at time, and I was wondering if it's all right if I ask one more question before I let you go. Sure, shoot. Okay, cool. So in that end-of-year report that I mentioned earlier that Studio D put out about what all the work that you guys have done in 2017 there was this quote that stood out to me and also a lot of other people um and the quote was the rise of human-centered design and the consequent language of empathy masks a greater truth that the intent behind the research is often not in the best interest of the people they pertain to i just kind of wanted to like hear your thoughts behind this um and what we can do as a research community to make sure that we are working in the best interests of the people 
um, you know, that we're working with. Okay. So um, first of all, I, I'll preface any answer with, if you're not morally challenged on the project that you're working on, then probably you're not doing a good job. And, and I want I want myself and my team to be morally challenged on every project that we're working on. Um, in terms of figuring out where the right line between um, pushing too far and doing the right thing is. So, um, because that in itself is an incredible learning opportunity for ourselves and the client as well. Mm -hmm. That statement was really around the mainstream streaming of human-centered design and design thinking um, practices. Maybe an extreme example of that is um, the sprint methodology, right? And the, the kind of research elements of sprint, which, which by the way, is a, an, an incredibly well-written book. But it, it all, it and those other things, human-centered design and design thinking, mm -hmm. really have pushed a lot of language into organizations and have been embraced by many people within, within organizations who really haven't got a fucking clue about where the origins of those are and the rationale behind them. And so in the same way I mentioned at the beginning of this interview that I think there are notionally good by societal metrics organizations that actually, I think, are making things worse. And there are notionally bad societal metrics organizations that have units within them that are trying to change the direction of those uh, organizations. In the same way as that, I think there's quite a lot of practitioners who are within organizations that use human-centered design as a way of rationalizing essentially shitty decisions that they're making in terms of their impact on society. I think it's a really good reminder in terms of what you said, where it isn't so much about like necessarily the application, because obviously, like as you mentioned earlier, rigorous research and, you know, doing good work is really important. But even more than that is the intent behind it. And I think that's also demonstrated by you know, all of the stories that you've shared about fixers and, you know, here are a bunch of people who don't necessarily have a background in research, but it sounds like at least, you know, two of 10 typically on a project are able to really understand the intent and, um, you know, follow through on it. So, yeah, I think it's a really good reminder for us that it shouldn't just be about how, you know, quote unquote, good our research is, but it should be also like how good is our intent and making sure that we're pushing back when we feel like that intent isn't right with our organization as well. Thanks for listening. If you want to continue the conversation, join us in the Slack group for a Q&A with Jan. Today, Thursday, February 15th at 7 p.m. Pacific time. If you aren't already a member of the Slack group, you can request an invite under the community tab on our website, mixed-methods.org. Jan has a bunch of great resources and events offered on his website, Studio D Radio Durands. So check those out as well. Special thanks to Denny Fuller, our audio engineer and composer, and Laura Levitt, our designer. See you next season.